You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Foundations of Our Faith with Christopher Hudson. Hi, my name is Brother Christopher Hudson, and I'm so glad that you can join us at this time for another special Amazing Discoveries presentation. Now, before we get into the Word of God, as it is my tradition, I always like to have a word of prayer to invite the Spirit of God to be our instructor. So, if you will, I invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for giving us the awesome privilege of having your Word. Your Word, which is given unto us to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. I pray simply as David prayed, please, open thou our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law and sanctify us through thy truth, for thy word is true. May the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, truly be our instructor and guide us in the way of righteousness. Thank you for hearing this, our prayer. For all things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to share something with you at this time from the book of Revelation chapter 10. I believe it is very important information and it's very exciting if I might say so myself. Now I'm going to let you know before I get into Revelation chapter 10 that I'm going to be dealing with a great deal of information. So I don't want you to get lost in the details. I want you to retain the very important principles that I'll seek to punctuate in your mind as we go step by step through this study together. But don't allow any of the information, any of the information to go over your head. In Revelation chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says this, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, having a rainbow upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. Now, for those of you out there that have taken time to study the books of Daniel and Revelation, you may be familiar as to who this mighty angel of Revelation chapter 10 indeed is. Now, I'm just going to say something. I'm going to make a very clear statement. It's going to startle some people, I believe, if you're not familiar with these things. But nonetheless, I'm going to make this statement, and then I'm going to prove this statement from the Word of God. This mighty angel is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now, I know that might startle the minds of some individuals if you have not studied these things in the Bible, but once again, I told you I'm going to prove these things from the Scripture. Now, even though I told you that this mighty angel is Jesus and that I'm going to prove this to you from the Bible, the primary focus of our look, our investigation in Revelation chapter 10 will not be to simply identify that this mighty angel is Jesus. And I'm going to express to you why that's not going to be the primary focus of our investigation. You see, the word angel comes from the root word anglos, which means messenger. The primary function of a messenger is to give a message. Therefore, the primary focus of our investigation in Revelation chapter 10 at this time will not be to simply identify who the messenger is, but more importantly, to identify the message that is being carried by the messenger because that is the chief function of a messenger to give a message. Now, how will, we, how will we be able to identify the message of this mighty messenger in Revelation chapter 10? By simply looking at the identifying characteristics associated with him. 
You see, the Bible tells us that this mighty angel or mighty messenger, he is clothed with a cloud. Now, in the book of Psalm, chapter 104 and verse 3, speaking of God, the Bible says this, Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariots, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. So God makes the clouds his chariots. Good. Now, keep that information in mind. Go with me to the book of Psalm chapter 68 and verse 17. Because in Psalm 68 and verse 17, the Bible expounds upon the chariots of God. We're told there in Psalm 68 and verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is amongst them as in Sinai in the holy place. Did you notice that the clouds that God makes his chariots are no more than a symbol used in the Bible to identify the presence of angels? Matter of fact, the Bible says it is thousands, time ten thousands of angels, and the Lord himself is amongst them, in the midst of them, as he was in Sinai, in the holy place. And then the Bible gives us a point of reference, the Mount Sinai. Now, if you're familiar with Old Testament scripture, you know that a very important event transpired on the Mount Sinai. That was the giving of the Ten Commandments. And there were some amazing things that happened surrounding that event. There was clouds and darkness and lightning and thundering. The great sound of a trumpet associated with this giving of the Ten Commandments. And in the midst of all of this, it was God himself. And so it lets us know that as God was giving the commandments, even the angels, the angelicos, was there surrounding him. I want you to get this point one more time from the Bible. Go with me in your Bibles again. We're going to go to the book of Psalm again, the book of Psalms. And we're going to go to, just want to open my Bible and make sure I give you the right reference here. Psalm, I believe it's chapter 97. That's accurate. Psalm chapter 97 or Psalm, the 97th division. And we're going to go to verse 2. The Bible says there, clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. And that word habitation means foundation. So at the foundation of the throne of God, which is high and lifted up, there is righteousness and judgment. But as God sits upon that throne, high and lifted up, the Bible says clouds surround him, letting us know that there are multitudes of angels that are surrounding the presence of God. You'll notice every time in the Bible when clouds are used to identify the presence of angels, it's pointing to angels as beings that cover the presence of the glory of God. Look at this one more time in your Bible with me. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Listen to this closely. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. The Bible says this. Behold, he cometh with clouds. Who's the he? It's talking about Jesus Christ. Behold, he cometh with clouds. What are those clouds? Angels. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him, even so. Amen. So at the second coming of Jesus Christ, or the second advent of the Son of God, he does not return to planet earth by himself. He comes attended by the clouds of heaven, or he comes accompanied by the whole angelic host. The armies of heaven follow the captain of the angelic host as he comes to planet earth. It's a beautiful scene. Every time you see the clouds, in the midst of them you see divinity. Which lets us know that in Revelation chapter 10, this mighty angel that is clothed with clouds cannot be an ordinary messenger. That must be a divine messenger. Not an ordinary angel. Not a created being. 
I want you to consider the issue of Jesus coming the second time to planet Earth, attended by the clouds or the angels of heaven. But I want you to look at this from a gospel reference. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and then shall appear. Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then shall he send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So when Jesus returns the second time, does he come by himself? We've seen it more than once. The answer is no. He comes attended by the angelic host, surrounded by the clouds of heaven. Then the Bible tells us that he will send forth these angels and they will begin the process of the gathering of his elect, the gathering of the saved, the gathering of the redeemed. Keep that in mind. Now, the Bible continues to talk in more particular language concerning this gathering process of the elect of God at the second coming of Jesus Christ in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll begin at verse 16. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, the Bible says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So notice, when Jesus comes the second time, the Son of Man, does he come by himself? Answer, no. He comes attended by the clouds of heaven or the angels of heaven. He will then send forth the angels and they will gather together the elect. But the Bible says the gathering of the elect begins with the dead in Christ because the scriptures are clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, when the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, having said all of this information, I want you to glean this important point. It is impossible to study the issue, the doctrine, the truth, concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ, objectively from the Bible. And when I say objectively, I mean you open your Bible with the mindset of, I want to know what the Bible says about when Jesus comes. Forget about what my mother told me, my grandmother told me, my grandfather told me, the pastor told me. I'm simply going to open the Bible and study from Genesis to Revelation to see what does the Bible say about when Jesus will return the second time. It is impossible to study the scriptures in this fashion concerning the second advent of Jesus Christ and come to anything but an accurate conclusion concerning the state of the dead. Let me say that in simpler language. If you study the second coming of Jesus Christ from the Bible, you will come to an accurate understanding of what condition the, of what condition the dead are in right now. Because as we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, did the Bible say 
For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And when he does that, the spirits of the redeemed will come from the courts of heaven at lightning speed. They will pass through Orion. They will come to planet earth, enter into their graves where their bodies are rotting, and then they will come out of the graves with immortal bodies. Did you see that in your Bible? It's not in your Bible. It's not in your Bible because it's not Bible truth. The Bible says that when the Lord himself comes, the dead in Christ shall rise first, which means currently the dead in Christ must be resting in their graves. And this is a truth that you will always come to if you objectively study the issue of the second advent of Jesus. Now, there may be some of you here that are still thinking, some of you that are watching right now still thinking, I can't follow this man right now because he told me that an angel is Jesus. And I don't believe that Jesus is an archangel. I agree with you. I agree with you 100% that Jesus is not an archangel. Jesus is the archangel. It's a big difference. You see, the Bible never speaks of multiple archangels. It only speaks of one singular, the archangel. The title archangel, and it is a title it means one that is chief, one that is above the angelic host. It does not denote or it does not mean that the one that possesses that title must indeed himself be an angel, a created being. It is distinguishing the being that possesses that title as one that has ultimate authority over all angels. Can that not be Jesus? Jesus is Michael, the one whom is like the Most High God. The Bible said, who being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God because he's like the most high. That's Philippians chapter 2. Now, my friends, you still might be saying, I don't believe that Jesus is Michael, the archangel. Well, do you remember that the Bible told us in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 that when the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, the reaction that will take place on planet earth at the voice of the archangel is that the dead in Christ will rise. So the voice of the archangel has the ability to bring the dead back to life. The voice of the Son of Man has the ability, the power, to raise the dead back to life, just like the voice of the archangel. You know why? They're one and the same. It takes divine power to exert creative influence to take something that is inanimate and make it animate. That's Jesus. But you still might be disturbed in your mind. And don't be disturbed because what I'm sharing with you from the scriptures is not that Jesus is a created being. No. Well, you said that he's the mighty angel. Yes, that's true. That's what the Bible says. He's the mighty messenger. Well, you say, I don't believe that Jesus is a messenger. Well, that means you don't believe the Bible. Or maybe you have not looked at it closely enough. Do you know the Bible actually declares that Jesus acts as a messenger, but he only acts as a messenger for one being and one being alone? I'll prove it to you unequivocally right now. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel, to give unto his servant John. Now, in this series of events, watch closely what takes place. The revelation of Jesus Christ actually originates with God the Father. 
God the Father then gives it to Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus signifies it, which means he places it into symbol, and then he communicates it to his angel. The angel then gives it to the prophet John, and the prophet John gives it to us. So in this order of events, Jesus acts as a messenger for one being, and that one being is God the Father. I'll prove it one more time in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now, my friends, if God is speaking to us through his Son, via Jesus himself, then that would mean that Jesus is acting as a messenger for his Father. One more scripture. Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Is it becoming clear to you now? Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. The Bible says this. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. The Bible literally calls the Lord the messenger of the covenant. He is the angel of the covenant. And my friends, that is exactly why in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1, the mighty angel that we see come down from heaven he is not only clothed with a cloud, but the Bible says he has a rainbow upon his head. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the symbol of the rainbow in the Bible, lights are now shooting off in your minds because you realize, ah, the rainbow was given by God as a token of the covenant. The angel of Revelation chapter 10 is the messenger of the covenant, the Lord whom ye seek. Now, with that thought in mind, let's deal a little bit more with this rainbow. Because I just told you that the rainbow in the Bible stands as a token of a covenant that God has made with humanity. Now, if you're familiar with this, your mind goes all the way back to the time of Noah and the event of the flood and the drying up of the waters. And then in the book of Genesis chapter 9, let me open my Bible there. In Genesis chapter 9, God says in verse 13, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. God gave us the rainbow every time the rain falls from the sky and the light from the sun pierces one of those droplets of water, creating a prism by which the spectrum of colors, the spectrum of light is beautifully displayed across the sky, what we are looking at is God's token of his covenant, his promise that he made with all inhabitants on planet earth, all flesh, man and beast alike, that he would never destroy this world again with a flood. Isn't that beautiful? I believe it's beautiful. You think it's any coincidence while the LGBT movement is utilizing the rainbow to symbolize a movement that indeed is contrary to the image of God as spoken of in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, 
which is an image that was being corrupted by man in Genesis chapter 6, which resulted in God sending a flood to destroy the world in Genesis chapter 6. Think on these things. Nonetheless, advancing forward, do you know that you don't have to wait, or should I say the universe doesn't have to wait? Indeed, the angels don't have to wait. For rain to fall on planet Earth, for them to view the beauty of a rainbow? Do you know that there is a rainbow that is perpetually, continually displaying its beauty? And it's located in the courts of heaven. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 3, speaking of the throne room of God, the Bible says, and he that sat, this is talking about God, and he that sat was to look upon as a sardin and a jasper stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So perpetually, as God sits upon his throne, high and lifted up, there is a rainbow that encircles his throne. Isn't that beautiful? Now I want to share something with you. Sister Ellen G. White, a messenger of God beyond a shadow of a doubt, in a book that she wrote inspired by the Spirit of God entitled Education, page 115, she made this statement concerning the rainbow. She said, The rainbow that spans the heavens with its arch of light is a token of God's covenant with all living creatures, with all flesh. We, lo we looked at that in Genesis chapter 9. Then she went on to say, Under the influence of the Spirit of God, and the rainbow that encircles the throne on high is also a token to God's children of his covenant of peace. So the rainbow that encircles the throne of God is a token, a symbol of a covenant of peace that he has made with his people. Do you know what that covenant of peace is? Do you think you should know what that covenant of peace is? My friends, when I began to consider that God has placed the token of this covenant of peace that he's made between himself and his children around his throne, I said, you know what? I need to understand this covenant of peace, and I need to understand it with as much clarity as my feeble, puny human mind can. Because this covenant of peace is so important to God that the token of this covenant, he's wrapped around his throne. That means every time the angels look to the throne of God, every time the universe beholds God sitting on his throne, they see this token, this rainbow encircling his throne, reminding them that God has made a peace with man. He's made a covenant with man, a covenant with peace. I don't think you understand how big this is. I want you to understand how big this is. I'll share another statement with you. I hope this helps you understand a little bit more clearly how big this is, that this token of the covenant of peace that God has made with his children, he has placed it round his own throne. In the book, Christ Object Lessons, another wonderful book that was written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God by Sister White, she stated this, God has staked the honor of his throne upon the fulfillment of his word to his children. That's a powerful statement. God has, staked the fulfill God has staked the honor of his throne upon the fulfillment of his word 
to his people. You know what it means to stake something. Some of you, when you were caught up in the world, some of you still caught up in these things. I'm praying for you. When you were caught up in gambling and betting, you know, when the, when, when the pot was high, you would say, man, the stakes are high. There's a lot to be gained or a lot to be lost. There's a lot riding on this one. When God says he has staked his throne upon the fulfillment of his promises to us, he is simply stating this. If I cannot fulfill this covenant of peace with humanity, if I cannot come through on my promise with my people, then I will surrender my throne. This covenant of peace is so important to God that he is willing to place his throne in jeopardy upon his fulfillment, his ability to fulfill this promise to us. Now, do you believe that it's important for you to understand what the covenant of peace is? Well, what is it, what is it then? Okay, Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 26, this is what the Bible says. Ezekiel 37, verse 26. The Bible says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will place them, and I will multiply them. My sanctuary also will I set amongst them. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God's covenant of peace is God's promise that he will turn the present condition of humanity. He will produce a new state within the hearts of men that will fit us to be able to enter into face-to-face -face communion with him. God is saying, he is promising that he will destroy the enmity that separates humanity from himself. He will remove the dividing wall that separates humanity from himself. He will once again restore the communion that existed between man and himself when humanity was living in perfection in the Garden of Eden. The restoration will be so full and so complete that God says, my sanctuary will be with them. My tabernacle also will be with them. In other words, God is saying, I will dwell in the physical presence of man. I will bring my home and place it where man lives. And I will, I will adopt humanity into my family and declare myself to be their God and all of them to be my people forever. What a wonderful promise. We actually see the fulfillment of this covenant of peace in the book of Revelation where we see a new heavens and a new earth and the tabernacle of God comes down from heaven to be with men. And the scripture says, God himself shall be with them. And they shall be his people. It will be fulfilled. God has prophesied it. And all that God says always comes to pass because his promises are true. His word faileth not. So the question is not in the air as to whether or not God can fulfill this covenant. The question in the air right now is, will you enter into that covenant with God? And if it is your desire to enter into that covenant, 
How is it that you can participate in it? The Bible talks about it. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 10, God says, And this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and in their hearts will I write them. Yea, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There it is, the covenant of peace. It's what many people know as the new covenant. God says, I am going to have a people that will cooperate with me so that I can embed my law in their minds and also inscribe it or write it upon their hearts. Now, I always find this scripture interesting because I think to myself, well, God, why isn't, why isn't it sufficient for you to simply put your law into my mind? Why do you have to write it upon my heart? And it becomes very clear as to why God deems it important to do both of these things with his law within man. You see, with the mind, we intellectually ascend to the reality of the truth. We logically can accept the fact that, okay, th there's some truth to the Word of God. Even the atheist accepts the truth of the Word of God to a greater degree than many will uh, want to agree. Let's be honest. Uh, if I was to, no, let me, let me not say me, maybe you. If you were to run down the street with a gun, and shoot, have mercy. Uh, a family member of someone who was a self-proclaimed atheist, do you not think that they would want justice? Of course they would want justice. Why? Because they believe thou shalt not kill. And even though someone deems themselves to be an atheist, would they want their spouse to engage in adultery? No. Why? Because thou shalt not commit adultery. And even though someone deems themselves to be an atheist, would they like someone to talk evil about them? No. Why? Thou shalt not bear false witness. So on a very rational, logical basis, even the atheist can reason through the principles of the word of God and ascend to many of them as, okay, that's good. But God says, I don't just want you to have the law in your mind. I don't want you to just embrace the theory. I want you to have it in your heart. I need it to be in your heart. Because the Bible tells us in Psalm, the 40th division, the 8th verse, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within mine heart. God doesn't simply want us to comprehend the truth. He wants us to delight in obeying the truth. And that is is a massive difference because there are many people many of you right now that you know you know that the law of god is true nobody has to tell you that for instance uh, uh many of you out there you've seen all of the documentaries you, you you've read all of the scientific data you've heard the the presentations by the renowned scientists and doctors and the conclusion is conclusive that a plant-based diet is far superior to a flesh meat diet. And when I say flesh meat diet, that includes fish. And you can see it and you can see the data and say, hmm, yes, this is true. And yet, you do not make the lifestyle change to get off the flesh meat diet to get on the plant-based diet. Why? Because you know the truth, but you find no delight in obeying it. 
And you can run the gamut with this one. This is the truth on too many levels concerning the word of God. We know what is right, but we don't find pleasure in that which is right. And God is not going to drag anybody into heaven. Heaven is not going to be filled with people that know theory. Heaven is going to be filled with people that love God. And he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll abide by my law. And so God is looking for a people that will cooperate with his spirit that is seeking to lead us into truth day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. He's looking for a people that are willing to yield their thought patterns to being governed by the divine mind of God so that his truth might be firmly inculcated or inscribed within their minds and in their hearts so that they're fit to be participants in eternity. And if you cooperate with God simply by coming to him, because listen, the reality is we don't have a natural joy in obeying the truth. The Bible is clear in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. It says, for the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. The carnal mind doesn't have a problem. The carnal mind is the problem. Notice the Bible said it is enmity against God. It's not like the carnal mind has cancer. It is the cancer. The carnal mind refuses to subject itself to the mind of God. So naturally, we are all in a condition where we will not naturally find joy or delight in obedience. That's where the omnipotent, transforming power of Jesus Christ comes in. For the Bible says, for as many as receive him, to them will he give power to become the sons of God, a people that God will look upon and say, I am their God. These are my people. If you receive Christ into your life and believe that he can transform your thinking and empower you with his presence so that you can begin to have joy in what he has joy in and you can begin to hate what he has hatred for, if you believe all things are possible in Christ. And if you accept this work into your life, then God says, I'll do something special for you. I like this one. I like it a lot. It's in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 16. In Hebrews 10 and verse 16, the Bible says this. Moreover, I will make a covenant with them. I love it. God says that he will write his law in our hearts and in our minds and our sins and iniquities, he'll remember no more. If we cooperate with God so that he can put his law into our hearts and into our minds, he says all the sins that you've ever practiced, every known sin that you rebelliously engaged in, even when you knew it was breaking my heart, I'll forget it all. And I always find that extremely powerful. How does God, who knows all things, forget anything? God, who knew all things before there was anything, he'll forget something. He says he'll forget something, and that's all your sins. Praise God. I mean, praise God. You hear, you know, we hear these things sometimes, and we say, oh, yeah, that's great. Ah, that's nice. Think about this. Think about this. There was an issue that took place, I, I believe, just a couple of years ago. There was a, a website. I don't remember the name, and if I did remember the name, I wouldn't want to call it. But there was a website that married individuals would sign up to 
to engage in adulterous relationships with other married individuals anonymously. And then, much to their dismay, a hacker hacked their site and exposed all the names of the people signed up. Can you imagine? I can imagine there was some minister blushing on some Sunday morning. Have mercy. And yet, there was nothing they could do. Everyone saw their sin. Do you think a promise like this from God to them would mean a lot? See, my friends, when we begin to realize how filthy our sinful characters are, so filthy and so corrupt, so vile, that they're of a nature that we don't want anybody to behold, this promise begins to mean a whole lot. God says, I will not remember your sins nor your iniquities. How is he going to do it? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 43 and verse 25, God makes it plain. This is what he says. You have to listen to this one closely. I hope it revolutionizes your life. God says, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and your sins will I remember no more. God didn't tell us that he's going to blot out our transgressions for our sakes. He said, it's, he said that he's going to do it for his own sake, which tells me and should tell you that God has a vested interest in getting rid of your sins. God desires to get rid of our sins more than we desire to get rid of our sins. How do we know that? Because while you're practicing sin, God's trying to deliver you from it. While you're rebelling against him, God is trying to invite you to make peace with him. God wants you to be liberated from sin more than you want that for yourselves. He says, I want to get rid of your sins. I want to blot them out for my own sake. Isn't that beautiful? That lets me know that when the devil comes to many of us, because it happens, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it happens, that there may be times where discouragement or dismay may come upon you for some reason, for some reason, you may slip and fall into sin. And when you slip and fall into that sin, you feel so filthy, you feel so dirty, you feel so guilty, and now the devil is coming to capitalize. He comes to capitalize and he initiates psychological warfare on a supernatural level. And he begins to set before you your unfaithfulness, your infidelity, he begins to put before you how broken you are, how weak you are, and that God will never receive you again because you knew what was right, but you chose to do what was wrong. My friend, when God comes to you with, excuse me, when the devil comes to you with those insinuations, do you realize that you can look him in the face? You can say to him, hypothetically, it is true, I've been unfaithful. It is true. I have gone against the will of my God. But God said that he wants to blot out my sins for his own sake. Therefore, I will go to him. I will confess my sins. I will repent and turn away from my unrighteous deeds. And I will grab hold of the strength of God and obey him. Because I love him. And he loves me. 
God said he's going to do it for your own sake. How is he going to get rid of your sin? He says, I'm going to blot them out. Now that word blot them, or phrase rather, blot them out, that's very key. Because it points us to the sanctuary. You see, in the Jewish economy, they had what was the daily service in association with the sanctuary services. And daily people were able to bring their sin offerings. Let's say the lamb, which is the most notable offering. And those offerings that they brought were for the forgiveness of their sins. But only once a year did they have something called the Day of Atonement. This was a day of judgment. And on this day, the blotting out of sins took place, meaning the total erasing of sins. Because all throughout the year, through the daily service, you can imagine if people are bringing lambs and slaughtering lambs for the forgiveness of their sins, and this blood is being transported, or transferred rather, into the sanctuary, there was a lot of blood that was being placed inside of the precincts of the sanctuary. Well, once a year, there was a cleansing that would take place, the Day of Atonement. It was a day of judgment. And on this day, all who had confessed their sins and had them transferred into the sanctuary, their sins would be blotted out. That means for us to understand the covenant of peace, we have to understand not only that God wants to put his commandments, his law into our minds, but he also wants to blot out our sins, and that is in the sanctuary. And you can't understand the blotting out of sins if you do not understand the sanctuary message. Do you understand it? Have you taken the time to study the sanctuary message that Jesus, our great high priest, is even now standing at the right hand of the throne of God, officiating on your behalf and on our mind? We need to understand that. And all of this truth is directly associated with the beautiful token of the covenant, the rainbow upon that angel's head. Before I go beyond this point, I will be remiss if I do not establish something in your mind. It's the answer to the question that God has given to me concerning why he would blot out our transgressions and remember them no more for his own sake. I always say when I got married, I began to understand the Bible better. When I had a daughter, I really began to understand the Bible better. So every married person, you should begin to understand this issue better when I begin to relate to you a scenario that may be familiar to some of you. If trouble comes into the home, if peace is disturbed in the marriage relationship because some unkindness, um, some wrong word or, or, or some misdeed was done by one spouse to the other spouse, the only way that uh, harmony and peace, joy can once again be restored into that home is if the guilty party comes to the party that they injured and says, I'm sorry, they asked for forgiveness. And then the injured party, in turn, offers forgiveness to the guilty party, and that forgiveness is full and complete. It's so full and complete that the injured party seeks to forget, totally forget, what injury was caused to them by their spouse. Because if they don't seek to totally forget the injury that was caused to them, whenever an issue might arise again, that same problem will rise up its head again. You always do this. Remember when you did that? And that is not a good situation. You see, my friends, God is seeking to adopt a people to himself throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. 
He wants to love us like a husband loves his wife. And throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, God wants to be with us and enjoy communion with us. And therefore, God literally will blot out of his own mind every remembrance of every sin and every injury we caused him through our rebellion and disobedience so that as he looks into our faces throughout eternity, all he sees is the ones that he loves. Isn't that beautiful? All connected to the rainbow. God's great love for us, the covenant of peace. But that mighty angel did not only have a rainbow upon its head, the Bible tells us that his face beamed with the glory of the sun. Now, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16, when John the Revelator was on the Isle of Patmos, the Bible says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the seventh day, that being the Sabbath day, because God tells us in the book of Exodus chapter 20, Beginning at verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Jews? No, is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. So the seventh day, the Sabbath day is the Lord's day. John was filled with the Spirit of God. He was caught up in vision on the Sabbath day. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came to meet with him on the Isle of Patmos. And so then he proceeds to give us a description of what he beheld. In verse 16 in Revelation chapter 1, the Bible says, In his right hand were seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, meaning his face, shined like the sun in its strength. So Jesus is the one that possesses a face that beams with the brilliance of the glory of the sun. Now, with that in mind, go with me to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. Now, listen closely. Malachi 4 and verse 2 says this. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Now, the Son of righteousness does not bring healing in his wings to all. If you paid close attention to the verse... You notice that there is a prerequisite, a requirement that must be fulfilled if you desire to receive the healing beams from the son of righteousness. And what is that prerequisite? He said, unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. So we must fear the name of God. Somebody's out there saying, praise the Lord. We have to call upon the name of Jesus in the South, they say, bless your heart. It's true, we have to call upon the name of Jesus. But when God talks about fearing his name, it goes beyond the title into what the title actually stands for. I talked about this in another presentation. In the book of Exodus chapter 33, when God was communing with his servant Moses, in verse 18, Moses said to God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. In verse 19, God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. God says, I'll proclaim my name in response to Moses asking him to show him his glory, because God's glory and his name are synonymous, one and the same. Now, what did God proclaim when he proclaimed his name? Some of you are thinking he said, I am the I am. 
or that he said Jehovah? Well, let's see what God says with his own mouth. Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 5, the Bible says this, And the Lord descended in a cloud. Now, I, have, I think you have a better understanding of what that cloud was now. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord thy God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sins, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. When God proclaimed his name, it is very clear that God expounded upon his character. He gave a clear revelation of who he was. The merciful God, the gracious God, the long-suffering God, the one that is abundant in goodness and truth. That is the name of God, his character. Because in the Bible, names are always reflective of the character of the one that possesses it or the work that he or she is to accomplish. God says he wants us to fear, to reverence, to respect, to honor his character. And unfortunately, the majority of humanity does not do that. There is one attribute of the character of God that we love to respect, and that's his mercy. Oh, do we love to talk about the mercy of God. You can go to almost any church, any Sunday morning, and you will hear the mercy of God spoken of about 20, 50 times. Rightfully so. It should be spoken of. It should be spoken of in every church because when God began to speak of his character, the first thing that he said was that he's merciful. And then a little bit further on, he said, keeping mercy for thousands. So he, uh, he, he actually highlights more than once that he's a very merciful being. So it's something that we need to highlight as well. However, we tend to take the mercy of God for granted because we love to talk about his mercy, we love to talk about his grace, but we don't love to talk about the fact that he will by no means clear the guilty. And that's what we need to talk about sometimes. Just imagine, my friends, just imagine if your children went around and said, oh, my mother, my father, they're so great. Oh, my mother, my father, they're so great. They won't care if I take steal money from them. They won't care if I steal the car. <laughs> ah, don't worry about them. They won't do anything. Does your child love you if they deal with you like that? Can you not see that they're taking for granted your merciful kindness? And therefore, in taking for granted your merciful kindness, they totally overlook your rightful authority to be the exactor of justice. And all of us love justice. Even if you don't like to admit it, you love justice. Because like I told you earlier, if somebody came into your home and shot your family member, you'd want justice and rightfully so. We always love justice until it comes to us. Then we want mercy to be perpetual. But God says, I need you to acknowledge and reverence and respect the fact that I am a God that is loving, that is kind, but as well, I will by no means clear the guilty. I want you to respect me. Honor me. There's so much more that's associated with that, and I truly do encourage you, take the time to study in the Bible what it means to fear God. 
How in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13, we're told that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, hate evil, pride, arrogancy, evil, the forward mouth. Do I hate? If you love God and you reverence and respect him for who he is, then you'll hate everything that hurts his heart. You'll want to be free from thought patterns, lifestyle practices, and speech that could repulse the heart of God. That really reveals that you fear him, that you reverence him, that you respect him, that you love him. When you have a desire in your heart to be like God, but you realize within yourself you don't have the power to be like God, but you hate being proud you hate being a liar. You're tired of being an adulterer. You're tired of having pornography addiction. You're tired of being a smoker. You're tired of being a, a gossiper. You're tired of being a slave to fashion. You're tired of being mastered, a bondservant, a slave to vice, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. You're tired of it. And you want freedom but you realize that in yourself the power is not there. And you look unto God as your only hope because you know he's merciful. And by his grace you can be saved if you put your faith in him. The Bible says unto you that fear his name, the son of righteousness, Jesus, will come and he will bring healing in his wings, he will heal you of your sin problem. But before you can be healed, you must acknowledge your sickness. Are you willing to do that? You know what I like about that verse so much? That word wings in the original uh, Hebrew language from whence it was translated, it doesn't simply mean like the wings on the back of a bird or the wings on the back of an angel. <laughs> it means the borders of one's garments. You know, the hem of a garment, the borders of one's garments. And you might be thinking to yourself, what relevance is, how is that relevant to this? It's very relevant. When the word of God was made flesh, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. When the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, he was not a part of the, of the Philistines. He was not a Samaritan. Now, he came as a Jew, a son of Israel. There was something that every devout Israelite or Jew was to have at the border of their garments. The Bible speaks of it in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, beginning at verse 38. It says, There speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they put fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations and that they put upon the fringe of the border a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that ye go not after your own hearts and your own eyes after which ye use to go a whoring. The ribbon of blue was to stand as a perpetual symbol of the commandments of God and their responsibility to faithfully obey. That their footsteps and all of their handiwork should be governed by the law of God. 
God tells us in the book of Psalm chapter uh, 119, verse 172, my tongue shall speak of thy word for all thy commandments are righteousness. The commandments of God, the law of God, is God's universal standard of righteousness, right doing. Jesus was the only one that lived a perfect life of obedience to the law of God. He fulfilled all righteousness. Why did he do it? For us. And he's declaring to us in Malachi 4 and verse 2 that if you find yourself trying to obey my will, powerless to do so, and you want victory over the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, you want to live in obedience to my will, then I will come unto you. And I will heal you from your unrighteousness by giving you my righteousness, my commandment-keeping life. Christ in you, Christ in me, Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's just like that woman that had an issue of blood, for those of you that are familiar with her, in the book of Luke chapter 8. This woman that had an issue of blood. Remember I told you the other day, if you listened to the other presentation that I shared with you, this woman that had an issue of blood, a woman in Bible prophecy can stand as a symbol of the church. Jeremiah 6 and verse 2, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. A woman can stand as a symbol of the church. This woman that had an issue of blood, she was sick for 12 years. That's interesting because there were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, 12 gates into the city. There are 12 foundations to the New Jerusalem. You'll find in the Bible that 12 is the number of God's government. And the church is the extension of the government of God on earth. Even though that was a literal woman that had a literal issue of blood, her situation certainly stands as a symbol of the situation that's now being experienced by the church. She had an issue of blood. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11 that the life of the flesh is in the blood. The woman was dying the same way that the church is dying. The church is dying. Matter of fact, studies came out, Pew studies came out in, in North America that Christianity is on the downward spiral. The fastest growing religion in America, coincidentally, is Wicca. That's a side note. Mark it, though. Anyhow, church dying. And just like that woman, she spent all of her, all of her resources to all of the doctors trying to find healing. She found none. Same thing the church is doing today. We're spending all of our resources, all of our time, all of our energies in all of these different directions trying to revive the church, trying to revive spirituality amongst God's people, trying to bring about revival and reformation. And what are we getting? Nothing. Why? Because we're looking in all the wrong places. But when that woman heard about Jesus... And she realized that in him was her only hope. The Bible tells us in Leviticus, not Leviticus, forgive me, Luke. Luke chapter 8 and verse 44. Luke chapter 8 and verse 44. It says, she came behind him and touched the borders of his garment. That's in Luke 8, 44. Immediately, immediately, the issue of her blood was staunched. It stopped. She found healing in his wings. It was the touch of faith. 
That touch of faith was so potent that Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? The disciples looked at him. We all touched you, Jesus. There are multitudes of people pressing around you, and you're asking, who touched you? But then Jesus said something that I believe is actually a statement of condemnation. At least they should have received it as such because he said, no, virtue has gone forth from me. I say it's a statement of condemnation, or at least they should have received it as such. It should have caused them to sit up or stand up straight because they touched him. Multitudes of people were touching him, but only one person touched Jesus and virtue went out of him, life-giving power. What were their touches like? Obviously, they weren't touches that would bring power into their life. Jesus said, no, virtue is going out of me. Someone touched me. And this woman was trying to hide. She was trying to hide from the view of Jesus. But Jesus fixed his eyes on her. She knew that she couldn't hide. And so she came forth and confessed. She felt guilty. But she came forth and she confessed. She said, this is what I did. I've been having a problem. I, touched, I, I just came and I touched you. I'm healed. And Jesus looked upon her with those loving eyes. And he said, woman, be of good cheer. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. She felt guilty, but he declared that she should now go in peace. He actually said, you were just in doing what you did. Do you realize that this woman received physical healing as well as spiritual healing? She was justified by faith in Jesus. <laughs> Do you know that justification by faith, which is the healing that we find in the beams of the Son of Righteousness, the only one who can heal us, the only one who can make us righteous. Do you know that justification by faith and the health message, these two go hand in hand. You actually can't separate them. That's why the Bible says, in the book of uh, 3 John and verse 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospereth. In other words, as you increase in spirituality, in tandem, I want you to increase in physical health. Isn't that wonderful? You can't separate the two of these. You cannot separate them. Matter of fact, if I appeal to the writings of Sister White once again, which I find very interesting, in a book by the name of Evangelism, she stated that many have written unto me asking me, is the message of justification by faith the third angel's message? She said, it is the third angel's message in verity, meaning that is the truth of it. That is the truth. Then another statement was made, in Testimonies to the Church, volume 1, page 486, I was shown that the health message is a part of the third angel's message, the same message, which is justification by faith. She saw that the health message is a part of it and is as closely connected to it as the arm and the hand with the human body. God's people must make advanced moves in this work. Ministers and people must act in concert. My friends, you can't separate the two of them. That's why the scripture says, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do it all to the glory of God. All. Justification by faith and the health message all connected to the face beaming with the glory of the Son. 
Let's wrap this up. That mighty angel in Revelation chapter 10, his feet also were like pillars of fire. Now in your mind, a reference point connected to a pillar of fire should pop up if you've been a reader of your Bible, if you've been a studier of the oracles of God. If not, go with me to the book of Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. A studier, <laughs> a student of the word of God. Exodus chapter 13, beginning at verse 21, the Bible says this. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and by night. When God was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt to Canaan, the promised land, in the daytime he led them by a pillar of cloud, but in the night he led them by a pillar of fire. He was leading them out of the darkness of Egypt by a pillar of fire. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that Egypt actually stands as a symbol of something very important. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Looking at verse 24, the Bible says, By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Egypt stood as a symbol of sin, which means when God was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt by a pillar of fire, in symbol, in type, he was giving them victory over sin. He was leading them out of a life of sin. Victory over the power of sin. Matter of fact, we're told in a very wonderful book, I encourage everyone to read it. It's called Patriots and Prophets. Once again, author Ellen White, inspired by God. I will always advise you to read the wonderful writings that God inspired her to give to us for such a time as this. We are told in Patriots and Prophets, that's the book I'm talking about now, that when God was leading the children of Israel through the Red Sea, he led them by a pillar of fire. The reason that is significant is because we're told in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Red Sea crossing was a symbol of baptism. And what is baptism a symbol of? All you have to do is turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans the 6th chapter. And in Romans chapter 6, looking at verse 6, it says this. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. If it's not clear enough, look at verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also, even so, should walk in the newness of life. Baptism is a symbol of the destruction of the old man that was a slave to sin and the rising up of the new man that is now living 
under the direction and power of the glory of God. It's a symbol of victory over sin by the power of God working within. The feet of pillar, pillars of fire is showing us that that mighty angel would lead a people in a life of victory over sin to be overcomers. And in his right hand, there was a little book open. Now, I, can't, I don't have the time to go through all the particulars. I do not want to weary you. But I can give you sufficient information concerning the contents of that little book that will satisfy our objective for this time. If you go with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 10, Revelation the 10th chapter, Revelation chapter 10, and you just drop down with me in Revelation chapter 10. Begin with me at verse 10. The Bible says this, John, and I took the little book out of his hand. That's talking about John. And I took the little book out of his hand, out of the angel's hand, and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. <laughs> and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Verse 11 says, and he said unto me, thou must prophesy again. Thou must do what? Prophesy again. Before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The contents of that little book, in short, was prophecy. Even the spirit of prophecy. Why do I say even the spirit of prophecy? I say that because all prophecy comes through the instrumentality of the spirit of prophecy. All prophecy originates from the spirit of prophecy. The Bible makes this very clear. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, where the word of God says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came out of old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. You see, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of prophecy that inspires all prophetic utterances. All of them. And how far and wide was this message supposed to go? Well, the angel put his right foot on the sea and his left foot upon the earth, which means that these messages were to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, everyone. Now, as I told you from the onset, I was going to share with you a lot of information. And you might be sitting here right now and you might be sitting at home right now and saying, praise God, that was beautiful, that was amazing. But in your mind, you might not see how all of these truths interlock with one another. So let me make it plain. The mighty angel that came down from heaven was clothed with a cloud. In us considering that, it pointed our attention to the second advent, and it brought to our attention the doctrine of the state of the dead. Then we looked at the fact that this angel had a rainbow upon its head, directly connected to the covenant which brings to our attention the importance of the law of God, his commandments, as well as the sanctuary message. Remember, that's where God blots out the sins in the sanctuary. Then we looked at the angel's face beaming with the brilliance of the sun, and it points our attention to justification by faith as well as the health message. Then we saw the angel's feet like pillars of fire pointing our attention to the fact that God wants to give us victory over sin. 
And we saw in the angel's hand a little book open, open, the spirit of prophecy. My friends, these are the seven pillars of our faith, state of the dead, the commandments of God, the sanctuary message, justification by faith, the health message, victory over sin, the spirit of prophecy, the seven pillars of our faith. And these were not doctrines or religious philosophical concepts that men sat down and came up with themselves. No, God himself, Jesus himself, delivered these messages to us. And in these last days, God is going to have a people whose characters will be built upon these seven pillars of truth, these seven pillars of power, for they are the support of the foundation of all true faith. And those whose characters are constructed upon these seven pillars, these are the individuals that God will use, spoken of in symbol in Revelation chapter 18, to lighten this world with his glory. Are you going to be one of those individuals? Will you? Will you? Because the Bible says this, and I need you to hear this as we close. Psalm chapter 127. Psalm 127 in verse 2. Psalm 127 and verse 2. Please look closely what your Bible says. It says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Is God building your house? The blueprint that God submitted to us that contains seven pillars is that the blueprint that's being utilized for the construction of your character? Or have you made some amendments and submitted your own blueprint to God? Are you one that says, yes, I believe in the commandments of God. And, and, and yes, I believe that I'm justif justified by faith. But I don't believe that God can give me victory over sin. I don't even believe that he has that for me. That's your own blueprint. You're building in vain. Are you one that says, yes, I believe in the commandments of God. I believe in the state of the dead, but I don't believe that a health message is really important. That's your own blueprint. My friends, if we are not cooperating with the Spirit of God so that the Lord himself is the one that is behind the construction of our characters, then everything that we're doing in the name of Christ all of our so-called religious activity, it is nothing more than vanity in the sight of heaven. It's worthless. It's an exercise in futility. Imagine living a life professed as a Christian and at the end of all things, it was nothing more than an exercise in worthlessness. What a tragedy that will be. What a tragedy. God has given us a blueprint. It contains seven pillars. And if we build on these seven pillars, when the rains descend and the floods rise up and the winds begin to blow and beat upon our houses and try our characters, we'll stand because God was the one that was building our houses, building, constructing, fashioning our characters so that we could be firmly hidden in Christ. And that's his desire for all of us. Let God build your house. Let God 
establish you on the foundation of this, our faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you have given us a blueprint by which, by faith in Jesus, we can be built up into living, living habitations that can be inhabited by thy spirit throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Please, forgive us for submitting our own blueprints. Today we ask, Lord, build us up for eternity and make us stand. Thank you for hearing this prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.